Welcome to the Weather of the Mind podcast. I'm your host, Doug Krish. Good day to you. Today's show is a book review oriented show. And like uh, the other book reviews shows I've done, they tend to be of books that I really like and really value. I'm not going to waste our time lambasting some book that it's not worth our time. I'm trying to introduce you to really thought-provoking books on the topics of emotional health, society, culture, history, the overlap of these type of things. And today's book is guaranteed to stimulate a lot of thoughts and a lot of insight into the very brief history of psychology. Today's episode, we're talking about Herman Rorschach, famous for the iconic Rorschach test. And the book I'm, I'm discussing today, when I fully endorse a very insightful, well-written book, is called The Inkblots, Herman Rorschach, His Iconic Test and the Power of Seeing by Damien Searles, S-E-A-R-L-S, Damien Searles. So it, it really is interesting because when I picked up this book, it was on the shelves under a biography of Rorschach. I didn't realize that it really is not just a biography of Rorschach. In fact, Rorschach dies at a young age, and this happens less than halfway through the book, or about at the halfway point. So I look back to the cover, and I read the subtitle, and I said, oh, it's not just his biography. It's about him, his test, and the power of seeing. Let me just start in by talking about this, this guy, Herman Rorschach. Who, who was Herman Rorschach? So he was born in 1884, November 8th, and, and lived to 1922. Only lived to be about 37, died suddenly of some appendicitis-related problems. His home is Zurich, Switzerland, where he lived a lot of his life, and, and in the region around Zurich. His father was an art teacher, and as a youngster, he spent a lot of times at art museums, and both sides of his family had artists in their history. So the presence of art was very strong. And he would go to museums a lot as a youngster and he would love to engage engage in the art, but also very fascinated by how what people saw and how people perceived art. We've been talking a lot about developmental psychology and who we are as a seven-year-old and how that relates to us later in life. Well, here we see a very young boy raised in a, in a household that really are, appreciated art and its value in society then making connections with how people perceive and understand this art, even from a young age. One other part of his early biography worth noting is that when he was uh, maybe a teenage uh, years, he had the nickname Klex, K-L-E-X, Klex. And that was short for Klexography, which actually meant inkblot, or this type of art style that was semi-popular at the time called ink, you know, inkblot, and then the word was Klex. So this guy who creates this iconic inkblot test had the nickname inkblot, so that's pretty bizarre. But it just shows that perhaps these themes are present in our lives, and it's just a matter of finding a good one and, and, get, and just get it rolling. So he was really torn when he was heading towards college age between following art and following science, and I think... At the end of the day, he always felt of himself as a unifier between these apparent opposites. So he did go into science, became a doctor, became a psychiatrist, and was working a lot at institutions. And that's where he was able to start experimenting. And he created these ink blot experiments, which he would try out different ones and honing them. And by the time he died, he had written his textbook on it. So he had done enough years of research to share the main ideas 
but he was still honing and refining the process. I think one of the most interesting themes of the book is how science, since it was since Rorschach's days in the 20s and 30s, pretty much they've taken this very interpretive, engaging experiment and turned it into this test that it could be mass produced and used at a wider scale. You see, these are themes of modern society. How can we slice something down to a smaller portion and reproduce it quickly? And what happens when you do that? Your results decline. So the Rorschach basically over the years has been pushed to be less of just a tool of engagement, a one-off tool of engagement that has proven to unleash very fascinating insights. Can, can we return to this place perhaps is one of the themes of this book and one that I think makes a lot of sense. So he developed this while he was a psychiatrist and it, it has a life of its own. Uh, a few highlights in the life of the Rorschach, which is a test. It's basically 10 white cards with black ink blot images on them. And there are some that have some color and then there's a, the last card who has a lot of color. So you have these 10 images. You're, if you took this test with a psychiatrist, they'd hand you the card. You can hold the card and they say, what do you see in this picture? And the idea is you just you know, say what you see and the psychiatrist would note down what you see. And then, and then there are different ways of coding this re these results out. But the problem is, is they want to code them more and they want to make it more efficient. They've even created a multiple choice version of the test and it's a dilution effect. So you can maximize for quality, you can maximize for quantity. But the book also leaves with a lot of optimism that therapy has been becoming more and more engaged in the last 20 years, seeing each individual as certainly a part of larger trends and larger personality types, but also investigating them as a, as a unique person. So I want to read a, a section from a speech given in 1943 by Olga Rorschach, Herman's wife. Herman's development rested on a scientific foundation, but his attitude towards life, towards people, towards the world was emotional. He was very even-tempered, harmonious, friendly, and cheerful. She goes on, He was very modest and straightforward in daily life, frugal and unassuming, the eternal student harmless and almost careless in practical things, not ambitious. Throughout his life, he kept a boyish sense of adventure, of being up for anything. He absolutely lived in the present with a good sense of humor and liking humor in others. Very loyal in his feelings, not authoritarian, he considered the feeling of deep respect to be the forefront cardinal virtue of humanity. I'm going to repeat that. He considered the feeling of deep respect to be the foremost cardinal virtue of humanity and judge people on the basis of whether this quality was present or absent in them. He was a religious person, but not pious and indifferent to the official church. 
Above all, what interested him was the mind or spirit as it revealed itself in human dynamics. From this arose his great interest in religions, their founders and how they came to be, also myths, sects, and folklore. He saw in all these phenomena the revelation of the human creative dynamic spirit. He saw in his mind's eye the subterranean river of humanity through the centuries, from the ancient Greeks through Romanticism to our own era, from Dionysius through Anton Untenaira to Rasputin, from Christ to St. Francis of Assisti. He loved this current of life in its multiplicity of appearances, in all its seeking and wandering. Wow, that is, that is like a meditation unto itself. It's like if we had baseball cards for people who just had a, a good mo mode of living, you know, if you could sum up in a few paragraphs uh, an outlook or a, uh, a vision of how to be, that was a beautiful, a, a really beautiful speech. And it speaks also of, of Olga, her depth and her her thoughtfulness and her awareness of... It's really an exceptional little excerpt. I hope you enjoy that. I'd like to read one more excerpt from Olga's speech talking about his style of work. I thought it was quite insightful. Herman worked with amazing ease as though playing and was extremely productive. The secret of his productivity was his constantly moving between different activities. He never worked for hours at a time at one thing. He liked to move from intellectual work to manual labor and back. He never worked in the evenings, which he devoted to his family. Likewise, never while on vacation, which was meant solely for relaxation. This changing of task, this transition from intellectual creation to woodworking or reading, restored him, refreshed his mind and receptiveness. He also liked visitors, but not unannounced and not if they stayed too long. Hour-long conversations on a single topic tired him, even if it, even if it was something he found interesting. I want to talk about Herman Rorschach's visual interests. I think most of all he was fascinated in perception. But what exactly is perception? Here's another ex here's an excerpt from the book. Descended from artists on both sides of his family, Herman Rorschach had a lifelong belief in perception as the point of intersection between mind, body, and world. He wanted to understand how different people see. And at the most fundamental level, seeing is, as the painter Cezanne said of color, the place where our brain and the universe meet. Perception. Seeing is the place where our brain and the universe meet. What we see. Does what we see relate to who we are? The idea with the inkblot is how we see and what we see indicates a bit about who we are. You can't separate our visual nature from ourselves. We're primarily visual. And I think the, and, and the author makes an outstanding point when he talks about that Rorschach is the visual psychologist 
and visual psychologist has not really taken off as much as it should. We're very, very focused on words and talking. But this is a different level of our brains than images and how we engage with images. Images is more primal. It is in the depths of our brain. Once we're using words, the primal is still there, but we're working with other levels of our brain as well. So that was one of the idea of the images. They would kind of jar the brain, jar us into a subconscious state. So let me read you another excerpt. Alone among the pioneers of psychology, Rorschach was a visual person and created a visual psychology. This is the great path not taken in mainstream psychology, even though most of us today, even the talkiest or most bookish, live in a predominantly visual world of images on surface and screens. We evolve to be visual. Our brains are in large part devoted to visual processing. Estimates run as high as 85%, and scientists are beginning to take that fact seriously. Seeing runs deeper than talking. Seeing runs deeper than talking. Freud, though, was a word person. The whole tradition he founded, from noticing puns and Freudian slips to talk therapy itself, was designed to reveal the unconscious in what we say or don't say. It is a psychology by the word people for the word people. Modern psychology, meanwhile, in recent decades, that is, worships at the altar of statistics, the revenge of the math people. Almost every field of knowledge is skewed to the verbal or the mathematical. Education is conducted in lectures and written tests and fetishizes statistical measures even more than psychology does. In intellectual life, there often seems like the only two choices, numbers or words, data or stories, science or humanities, hard or soft. So that was a great excerpt from the book and I really think it, it really, it truly hits the nail on the head. One of the themes of this podcast is we need serious educational reform. And I also think we need more tools and more path in the psychological therapy, co-therapy, uh, you know, teaching, educational, emotional health, and educational curriculum. We need more hands on deck. We need more approaches. Because just engaging the topics will be therapeutic in itself. Still, the biggest breakthrough in psychology since 1886 happened a few years before 1886. When Freud's mentor, Brewer, had a patient who famously be called, I think, A.O. And the deal was, is she was, uh, has, you know, psychologically not well. Maybe kind of a, kind of a schizophrenic or something. You know, they called it hysteria a lot back then. She was just not, not well. And he sat down, Brewer, and just asked her to explain what she was thinking and what she was feeling. And she went through it. And when she was done, all the symptoms disappeared. So this was like the breakthrough moment. You know, the early like, ah, ah, ah. The early big moment in psychology and, and, and Brewer's like understudy was Freud. So Freud just took this and just started testing it out and just became Mr. Therapist. My point is we're refining therapy and this and that. And the most important thing is to have someone you trust to create a space where they're going to just listen and support and not judge you. Listen, support, not judge. Now, 
it's easier for someone who doesn't know us to do that than for a family member. But if we can just create that space, say, you want you come into this room, I'm going to support you, I'm going to encourage you, I'm going to help you figure it out. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to judge anything. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't judge things in society, but I'm saying there's important places where we're providing something other than judgment. We're providing some support in a, in a, in a really thoughtful ear. And when people are distressed and worried and they have another human giving them that full attention, you know what? The, the words might not even matter. Just being in that space and being in that emotional state and have someone sit with you. So what I'm saying is we're just learning. We're just learning so much about our minds. And we're just learning so much about how modern individuals can learn to adapt to life as an individual. Because the rise of the individual is a very recent phenomenon in history. And the rise of the individual goes along with so many other problems. Psychological problems. Psychological problems often lead to drug problems, etc., etc. And I'm not to say there's never been a utopia, but we are just still trying to figure out how this mind works and how we can live healthy lives. man, these book review episodes are hard because these books are so well written and full of so much thought-provoking stuff. I'm reading this book and I'm thinking we could do, we can do three or four episodes and have like a book club on just this one book because there's just so much in there. Especially because it it basically takes this Rorschach test and walks it through history. So you get a very clear lens of the psychological history he was there right near the start. You know, he was around contemporary with Young, had the same teacher as Young. This is the early days, and they're not that long ago. Young only died in 1960-something. It's interesting also when you, when you have a, a, a great mind and someone who's innovating and thinking, what would Rorschach have done if he lived to be 75? I mean, this, this is someone who contributed a, a lot of great insights in his 30s. One, one can only wonder. One thing I appreciate about biographies is they're inevitably history books because they're talking about this, you know, a person's life, but they're also talking about how it was engaging with, with the time, the spirit of the time, the zeitgeist. One thing I thought this book did a great thing was it was speaking about the evolving sense of self. While all this psychology and innovation was occurring in the 1890s, 1900s, 1910s, there was this infatuation with this notion of the self. It's almost like the self was, was really starting to, like the modern individual was perhaps just starting to be being born in Zurich, in Vienna, but maybe not yet in some other cities, you know. But these inter, more international conglomerate type of cities in the 1890s, perhaps they were seeing the rise of this individual, but I wonder, maybe it was just an urban density thing. Now, it would certainly be cultural influenced. But it would be interesting to think what was happening in, in uh, Turin, Italy at this time. What was happening in Barcelona? 
Were you seeing these same things? It seemed like some cities were hotbeds of this, the next stage of human progress, quote unquote. And they're talking, I mean, they're talking about social revolutions. I mean, this is right before World War One. There's a lot of global politics. There's a lot of uncertainty. Time is speeding up. It's an intense time. And there's also a lot of thinking about psychology. Probably because you had more psychological problems, but also perhaps the average person was beginning to feel psychologically unwell commonly. Maybe this was seeing the rise of modern anxiety and modern depression. And one thing that was really fascinating that the, the, this, book at, uh, this book pointed out was there was kind of a switch that happened around this turn. of When you went to the 1800s, a lot of people were writing about character. And character, character can be defined, this is an excerpt from the book, character, an ideal of serving a higher moral and social order, was regularly invoked around the turn of the 20th century alongside citizenship, duty, democracy, work, honor, morals, manners, integrity, personality. In contrast, was invoked in the following decades, together with words like fascinating, stunning, attractive, magnetic, glowing, masterful, creative, dominant, forceful. So basically, there's this big switch of what is the foundation of a good human. It kind of goes from, does they have a good character? To, they ha to do they have a personality? See, as we move to a more individual society, it makes sense from like a anthropology point of view that you are more an individual so your individual characteristics your your personality your charisma becomes more important than your character which was really measured in social relationships in your circles whether it's in your tribe or your village your neighborhood as as we grow more modern and you become more anonymous urbanites it enables this individuality and we and, and the notion is switching. Character. Is character the foundation of a person? Or is personality the foundation of a person? Once again, the book to check out, The Inkblots, Herman Rorschach, His Iconic Test and the Power of Seeing by Damien Searles. Check it out in libraries everywhere. It's a great book, very stimulating. It's laid some fresh seeds of thought in my mind, which I look forward to watering all week long. <laughs> no, probably for the rest of my life. I hope this podcast served you well. I hope the influence of Rorschach can help us see and see how we see and reflect on the role of a visual psychology. I wish you well. Keep living and learning. Stay hydrated. Get some exercise. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm.